we're gonna need to pray <laughs> more especially dear father I just thank you so much for who you are that you are great and you do marvelous things the great God and Lord, um, without you, Lord, we'd be so lost, <coughs> meaningless, and um, Lord, without true hope. But thank you, Lord God, that you are a God who is at work in our lives in the very uninspired moments. Lord, you make it inspired. Lord, you are the God of the waking up in the morning, the God of the, the journey to work. You're the God of the, the smoko. You're the God of church meetings. You're the God of um, the God that corrects us, chastises us, and shows us the way to go. And I just thank you so much for who you are in Jesus name. Amen. So um I was reading through Esther recently and um certain things really struck me about this um about this book. Here is a woman who's gone into exile very young. The the word that's used about her probably indicates that she was um adolescent. She's um, come of age, but she's very young. Her parents are dead, and um, she's looked after by her cousin Mordecai, who's like a father to her. And she is um, she's such an example of somebody who's faced with something that she doesn't want to do, that she's scared of doing, but she is um, she puts her faith in God. And she becomes a real picture of Christ. I don't know how many women in Scripture are prefigurements of Jesus, but Esther is one of them. And um, she's in um, exile in um, this is after the Babylonian era. Now you, we're in the the Persians and the Greeks. And the person who is on the throne here is Ahasuerus, or um, they call him Xerxes in historical literature. And he ruled between 486 to 465 BC. He wasn't a nice guy. He was a guy who indulged in pleasure, a guy who took what he wanted. But the Persians and the, the, the Medes were pretty liberal when it came to the way, you know, people lived. They didn't, they allowed you to have your own way, your own religion, your own, whatever you want to do. And we find that there's a time when Ahasuerus wants to show off the grandeur of his, um, of his kingdom. And so they have a banquet. You'll see that in chapter one, verse three. He gave an, a, a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his province, 
provinces being in his presence. And then what happens is this, this feast is followed by 180 days of him displaying the grandeur of his kingdom. So maybe there, there have been marches and demonstrations and military presence to show how great his kingdom was. And then in verse 5 it says, when those days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel from Susa. So now it's not just for the nobles and the princes, but everybody can get in on the party. And then in verse um, 7 to verse 9, we actually see that um, they it was basically drink as much as you want, but no one's to force you to drink more than you want. So you can see how liberal they are. It's like we're not forcing you to have a good time, but if you want to get blotto and you want to get completely paralytic, it's on the house. Um, so they're very tolerant, I, I, you know, in the modern word of the sense of the term tolerant. Tolerant of all the differences. You don't like, but you do, so both is fine. However, the way the king is, he's very misogynistic. He's very much a person who objectifies women. He has a harem. You know, people debate how, how historical the book of Esther is because there is no record of um, a Queen Esther. Um, there's no, we don't really know of a Queen Vashti. There, there was a queen that some people think might have been Vashti, but we don't know for certain. It might be interesting to note that 30 years after these events, that, pa that palace in Susa was burnt to the ground. So if there were historical documents and they were not copied and put in other places, those documents are lost forever, except for one document we have. It's called the Book of Esther. So <laughs> we have that preserved for us. But he was quite misogynistic, and so... And we find that Queen Vashti is very much of a liberation figure for women. Um, she's very much um, the lady who defies the king. She, if you look at verse 9, she gives a banquet for the women in the palace who belong to King Ahasuerus. And, in, and the reason why that's significant is because in this culture at this time, women and men were expected to feast together. So she's separated herself and done a special feast for the women. And really, this is, for me, as I read this narrative, I see this is an outplaying, historically, of the curse of the fall. So we turn to Genesis, and we turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we have the fall, and God curses the, the snake first, um, and then he curses the woman and he says in verse 16, To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now this language of desire and rule is used again in chapter 4 when Cain is angry because his brother's sacrifice was acceptable to God, but his offering was not acceptable. And so he's, he got jealous. And God says to him in verse 6, he gives him a warning. 
And the Lord said to Cain of chapter 4, Why are you angry? And why has your face dropped, basically? If you do well, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The desire here is the desire to dominate. And the calling for Cain is to master sin, to rule over sin and put it in its place. Since the fall, we have a sin nature. We have a nature that doesn't matter when it kicks in, it's going to kick in. And for some, it kicks in very, very, very soon. And um, parents testify to that. But that desire and that mastery is the same kind of language used about the woman. Really, in creation, God makes the man the head, the protective head, the one who has an authority, but God's way of exercising authority is servant leadership. It is one who, as we've already heard said, one who lays down his life for another. The one who has responsibility but he, he uses that responsibility for the love and care and nourishment of the one entrusted in the care. It's protective servant oversight. Not over the women and the kids, but in that marriage relationship, the man, the head, the woman, the body. When someone hits your body, you don't say, well, you hit my body. You say, you hit me. Jesus is the head of the church. When Saul went after the Christians, Jesus didn't say, why did you go after these people who belong to me? He said, no, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He took it so personally. It's not just a sin against Christ's body, it's a sin against Christ himself. But the man and the woman together rule over over the, the world. He says, let us make man and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. The man and the woman rule together. It's not the man ruling over the wife and the kids. It's the, the man and the wife governing the house together as a, as a team. And so in creation, that headship is played out the way that God wants it to play out. But because of the fall, it becomes a power contest. And so your desire will be for your husband. She has that compulsion to dominate. And it says, and he will rule over you. And if he's already in that place of leadership, then what does this signify? Except a dominance that is not from God. That is not God's way of leading. One that rules by force and by brute force. What the world would call toxic masculinity, but they put that to all kind of male leadership attributes. But this is what they're at the kernel of what they're hitting against, but misplacing when they look at bold, assertive male leadership. But, but what they're hitting against at the kernel of it, I think God hits that against. He doesn't care when men mistreat their wives. In fact, Scripture makes it very clear that when a man does not, when a Christian man does not honor his wife and does not um, 
deal with her in an understanding manner. I, I like how it says that, um, in an understanding manner. It doesn't say you have to understand your wife, because <laughs> sometimes that's impossible. But it does say you have to be, you have to be understanding toward her. That's a, that's a challenge in the, the re- reality of when you first, especially when you first get married, but it's a challenge in marriage, but that's the call that God has. And he says, if you fail to do that, God says, I will not answer your prayers. And so this is, God takes it very, very seriously, the role of the husband and the role of the wife. God hates the oppression of those who are weaker. God hates it. He hates the misuse, the mistreatment of widows and orphans in Scripture. And so we see that in the marriage. Now, what we find in Esther is Queen Vashti separates herself. And then on this, in verse 10 of Esther chapter 1, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman Bista, Harbana Bigta, Abakta, Zathar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Now, there are a couple of different points of view. One, he wanted her to be displayed naked in front of them. The other is maybe unveiled or some other kind of inappropriate um, presentation in, according to the, the kind of dictates of that culture. But he basically, whatever way it was, he wanted to objectify her in front of the men. He was treating her as an object. He was treating her as, as something to be paraded as opposed to a wife that he loved. And so what the queen does to, to all the, the, the cheering of the feminists of our day is to, is she, in verse 12 it says, but Queen Vashti re- refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And so, and I think if I look at it, her stance was righteous. If I have to look at it in terms of what she's been required to do, I think what she's been required to do is insulting and degrading and shouldn't be, shouldn't be done, especially to your own wife. But the king, in verse 12, he's very angry and his wrath burned within him. And so what they do then is they depose her as being queen and they say that they want to pick another woman who is more worthy than her. And look what it says here, if we go to verse um, 18. And this is what the, the king is being told. This day the ladies of Persian media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. 
When the king's edict which he will make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So they saw the repercussions of what Vashti did to their society. They thought if Vashti gets away with this, it's going to embolden all women everywhere to assert themselves above their husbands. And um, for them, they couldn't do that. So they deposed her. The whole thing, the whole of it is contrary to God's ways. It's not that Vashti was the righteous one and Hesuerus was the wrong one. What he was doing was um, uncalled for. It was um, completely disgusting. But she's not righteous. He's not righteous. The whole society is contrary to God's ways. This is the society that Israel find themselves in, having to live as people who are having a wake-up call and we've not obeyed God's law and now we're suffering for it and we've got to live maintaining our Jewish separateness and identity in a world that doesn't run according to the word. And we never followed the word before we got into exile and now we've got to try and try and follow it as best we can, being in that society. And so the God, despite the fact that it's all contrary to his way, works his purposes through that for the, for the benefit of his people. And so the king, notice verse 22, it says, he sent letters to all the provinces, to each province according to its script, to every people according to their language. That's quite a huge undertaking that every man should be master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Meaning that prior to this time, it was normal that the children would, in a mixed family where the husband and the wife are from two different people groups, two different languages, it was normal that the children would speak the language of the mother. Now that's reversed. Now the children are to grow up speaking the language of the father. So they're putting the pressure on to make sure that what Vashti did will have no repercussion in the society at large. Now, they go looking for another woman to replace the, the Queen Vashti. And in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, Hadassah, I think, means myrtle, and it's a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. Esther means star, and it's the same name as Ishtar, the goddess of war and fertility in um, Babylon. So she's, just like with Daniel, his name being changed to Belteshazzar, and just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their original names were Mishael, Azariah, and what was the other one? Um, it was, ooh, 
Does anybody know? Three Hebrew names. Mishael. I've forgotten the second name. And then, sorry? Mishael. Mishael. So then you've got those three names being changed to names that celebrate Babylonian gods. And so Belteshazzar is the from the word is a derivative of Baal. It's, it's related to Baal. You've got um, Mishael, um, and his name is changed to Mishach. Abednego, Azariah means Yahweh's help. The, Yahweh is my help. Abednego, servant of Nebo, a Babylonian god. And so this is what happens when they go into exile. They're, putting, they're put on pagan labels onto them, their names. In fact, they take the Babylonian names of the months when they come back from exile, and that's why we have two sets of names. You've got the, the month of Aviv, which is the Hebrew name, and then it, today it's called Nisan. Babylon leaves its impression on the people of Israel. But the amazing thing about Esther, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is you can try and make me look sound pagan, but I'm not pagan here. They maintain their walk and their stance before the Lord. And so they are in this situation where the, all the women of the kingdom are being taken into the harem, all the available women. In verse 8, we see that the decree of the king, when it was heard, many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, and Esther was taken into the king's palace. Now, this is terrible because out of all those women that go into the harem, he's choosing one as his wife, and the others are going to be subjected to kind of basically perpetual widowhood. They're never going to have a husband. They're never going to have children. And for that, especially for the Jewish people, I'm guessing for the others as well, that's a huge, huge dishonor to not have children. In fact, you remember um, Samuel's mother, Hannah, and how she wept and she was in deep grief and mourning of the fact that she didn't have a child and her husband's other wife did have children. And yet the husband loved her more than the other, but it wasn't enough. She wanted to be able to be a mother. It was an honor for her. And so here they are, and she's, Esther's taken into this harem, not knowing what the outcome is going to be, not knowing what, what lies ahead. Being treated by the king as another female object. And what does she do? She honors Mordecai's role in her life. Look at verse 11, or verse 10 and 11. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Mordecai didn't think, well, now she's the king's property, we'll hand her over. He knows what the king is like, and he knows what the society is, and he knows that they do not fear God. He continues to be that role in her life, that man that she can look up to for that strength and um, 
for her care. And you'll see in verse 19 and 20, Mordecai, you know, he's still sitting at the king's gate. And, and it emphasizes again in verse 20, Esther had not made known yet her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did, Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. He continues to play that role as, as that male leader in her life. She's a young girl, remember that. She hasn't lived a life by herself, having to get used to the world by herself. She's a girl, but she's an adolescent girl. And so what happens is Mordecai uncovers a plot, that plot, two people um, plotting together to kill the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king in his name, and the whole thing is written in a book, the book of the Chronicles of the of those kings. Now, what happens later, we all know the, about Haman and how Haman, basically a descendant of Agag of the Amalekites, who Saul was supposed to kill, and he didn't. Now, the descendant of, of Agag wants to kill the descendant of Saul and all the Jews, for, for Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. And um, so Haman is a, a very important person in the king's court. And Haman, as he walks, people bow down before him, except Mordecai. And that really gets his, gets, gets, gets his goat, kind of arouses his ire. Because, and, and, and kind of wonder why Mordecai didn't fall before him. And one of the commentaries I read no, it was a um, Jewish source. They believed that Mordecai wore something that showed, portrayed himself as being a god. So the act of worship, the act of bowing down there was the act of worship. So that's the way they understood it, is that Mordecai wouldn't bow before him because he wouldn't worship a man as a god. Whatever the case is, Haman's full of self-importance and pride, and he's not going to stand for this. And so he goes to the king to say, there's a certain people, they don't fit in with us, they don't follow our ways. Doesn't that sound like, it sounds familiar? It's always been the case that Jewish people have been persecuted because they don't fit in with our identity. In South Africa, Jewish people were called cosmopolitan. Cosmopolitan meaning world citizens, global citizens, because they put their allegiance to their Jewish community before their allegiance to the nation that they're in. And for a lot of nationalists, that's, that's obscene. That should not be tolerated. But that's the way we should be in the body of Christ. We should put the body of Christ before king and country. It's not that we don't honor king and country, but God's kingdom comes first. God's family before Adam's family. And so um, I think it was John Paul Satra, he said the problem of the Jew is that he remains a Jew. And if he wasn't a Jew and if he was a Frenchman, he would be completely fine and acceptable and accepted. He also said that 
it's anti-Semitism that makes the Jew a Jew. He, 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 it wasn't like he was completely heartless towards Jewish people, but he saw the problem of anti-Semitism as, as the problem of the distinctiveness of the Jew. And this is exactly what's being said here. Haman hates the fact that Israel is a separate nation. You see, if this was just an issue about Mordecai, then he would just go for Mordecai. But this is an issue of anti-Semitism. No, I'm, because if Mordecai did this, I want to annihilate the whole Jewish race. And so he goes to the king to ask for an edict to be made which cannot be revoked, that on a certain day that they would allow the people of the land to rise up and, and annihilate the Jewish people. And, you, and he picked the time according to the lots he drew at the beginning of the year. When he, at the beginning of the year, they would draw lots to find out what the events would be in the day. It's superstition, but that's how they lived. But the amazing thing is, in this superstition, this pagan superstition, God's in control of the lot. And the certain lot is drawn for the certain day, and at that certain day, Haman comes to the king and says, please, put this into to law so we can get rid of these people. Mordecai finds out, the whole Jews, the, the Jewish people all over find out, and Mordecai puts on sackcloth, he, he, he's mourning over this, and he's so, um, he's so um, overwhelmed by fear and sadness, and he actually goes up to Esther, and he challenges her to speak to the king. And she says, I can't just go up to the king. If I go up to the king and he has not summoned me, there is one law for me, death. The only way out is that he would extend a golden scepter and give me grace. But otherwise, I'm taking my life in my hands. And this is what Mordecai says. And it's tough love. And it's hard. It's not easy. She's still a girl. Even though she's of age, she's still a girl. And Mordecai says to her in verse 13, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, deliverance and relief will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained to royalty for such a time as this. And we, we often focus on the words for such a time as this because it sounds very like my destiny, you know, such a time as this. But something gets missed here, and this is the, the interplay between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. That Mordecai knew God is sovereign, and God is going to save his people. But Mordecai also knew that we have responsibility. It's not a case of our whatever will be, will be. I'll just pray and God's just going to act. That God uses people. And the people he uses, when he gets the greatest glory, are willing vessels. God will use everybody. But the thing that really glorifies him is that he uses willing vessels. And he's saying to her, God, whether you do it or not, God's going to bring about deliverance. But are you going to be part of it? Or are you going to be on the outside? Are you going to be an instrument of honor in God's hands? 
Or is he going to glorify you through your distraction? Glorify himself through your distraction? Either way, God will work out his purposes. So there is a real reality of choice here that she can choose to obey and she can choose to reject, but she can't dictate the outcome of what God is going to do because God will fulfill his purposes through this. And by her doing this willingly, the glory that God gets is even greater. Why? Because in her doing it willingly, she becomes a picture of Christ. Look what it says here in verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Three days, three nights. Often in scripture, maybe not every time, but often in scripture, three days and three nights is a picture of death and resurrection. And you actually see this picture here because she says, if I perish, I perish. In other words, she committed herself and resigned to herself to that fate, if it so be. It's not that she thought, well, let's see. I'll do it and let's see. She's resigned herself to the fact that I am willing to lay my life down even now. And so in a real way, she died. And three days later, she gets raised from the dead. She becomes a picture of Christ. For who compelled Christ to go to the cross? Nobody. Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. He laid his life down voluntarily. Esther laid her life down voluntarily. No one made her do it. And then look at verse 17. Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. And Mordecai doesn't have this, what is this girl doing commanding me? He doesn't have that issue. There's no male-female rivalry and power, power struggle here. It's not like the king and Vashti. They're commanding each other. Why? Because the issue is so great that it's like she's going to do it. Great. I'll do what she asks. she's telling me to do, not asking me. She's telling me to do this. I'll do it. Because the issue of the salvation of the Jewish people is far more important than whether I get seen to be in control or not. This is not even in view. How very different Mordecai and Esther are to the king in Vashti. And I think that's really instructive for me because we have to be Christ in a world that is completely anti-Christ. We have to live according to a higher level. And when I say higher, I'm not saying that makes us more better than anybody else. I'm just saying it, God's way is higher than the world's way. And we have to live in that in a very graceful way in a world that hates God. Esther did it very graciously. She didn't go into the king's 
Rumors say, hey, king, she followed protocol. And she was very tentative the way she did it. She comes into the king, and what, what does the king do? He extends the golden scepter in chapter 5. And then what does she do? This really spoke to me. She went up to the scepter and touched it. And that is so important in our relationship with the Lord. Because she couldn't just walk into, the king extended the golden scepter. She just couldn't go in and get straight to business. The first thing she had to do is recognize that she is only there because he has extended that golden scepter. She had to touch that scepter. And it really spoke to me because it's like, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But are there times when I pray and I come boldly before that throne of grace and I don't recognize it's a throne of grace? That I have not extended my hand and touched that golden scepter and acknowledged, deliberately acknowledged, I'm only here because of the grace of the Lord. And so she comes up and, and the king, in verse 6, he says, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Now, what does that remind you of? It just really jumped up out at me when I looked at Salome. If we turn to Mark 6. Mark 6. John the Baptist has preached against the king because he took his brother's wife. And so he's had him arrested. And he keeps him in the cell. Maybe initially he wanted him killed, maybe. But afterwards, after he's in prison, he wants to hear from him. He regards him as a holy man. And so it says in verse 21 of Mark chapter 6, a, strate a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Now, the word girl there is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of the girls that were taken into the harem. It's also used in the New Testament to speak of little girl. But I would say she was adolescent. The people who danced before the king generally were prostitutes, according to one commentary that I read. And her pleasing Herod probably was sexual. There's a lot of people who think so. Some people disagree. But if you contrast that with Esther, here you have a, a girl, she, according to Josepha, she's called Salome. And Salome is a Hebrew name. It's the word shalom, peace. So you have someone with a Hebrew name dancing provocatively before the king. And then the king says to her, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. He says the same thing to her that the king said to Esther. And the one, this one, Salome, with the Hebrew name, she asks for the head of the Jew. But Esther, with the pagan name, 
she asks for the life of the Jews. Opposites. One gains the favor of the king through sensuality, but Esther gains the favor of the king by her godliness. And so we turn back to Esther and we see this godliness contrasted to Vashti, who made a righteous stance, but I don't think she was righteous, and contrasted to Salome, who was sensual, probably sensual. But Esther is meek, not weak, godly, and wise. She makes a feast for the king. She's not just going to blurt it out. And she says, please come to the feast. And Haman. Haman, he's elated. Because the queen asked for nobody else except the king and me. And as he goes out, he sees Mordecai failing to bow down to him after he's had the feast. So he goes home and he starts to tell his family about how the queen only invited him to the feast. But it's not enough as long as I see that Mordecai. You know, he's like, mm, he's, gotten into my, he's gotten into my nerves. Like all the happiness in the world gets spoiled by this one Jew because he refuses to bow down to me. And so his family tell him, well, why don't you build, why don't you build a, a gallows and ask the king for Mordecai to be hanged on it? He thinks that's a good idea. So he, he decides to go back to the king. Now, the queen, Esther, has asked for them to come to a second feast. And during this time, the king's tried to sleep, and he's not been able to sleep. And then what happens is he decides, well, let's have some, bed, some reading. He asks for the, 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 the records to be brought out and read to him. And they read of the account of how Mordecai saved the king's life. That little detail that Mordecai was not thanked for and he didn't care because his name was written in, the, in God's book of life, in God's records. The king thinks, well, has he been rewarded, this Mordecai? And they say, no, he hasn't. The king's horrified. So the king decides, I'm going to reward him. And just at that moment, guess who's walking in? Is Haman to ask for the head of Mordecai on the gallows. And the king turns around and says, oh, I'm so glad you've come. And... I've just got a question. What do you think should be done to the person that the king wants to honor the most? And Haman, in his, with his self-importance and his pride, said, well, who else could the king, let me think, who else could the king want to honor more than me? It's just impossible. So he says, well, I think you should get the royal chariot. You should put your signet ring on him and dress him in the, and have your most trusted loyal servant to lead him through and say, thus shall the king, do, this is what the king does to those he wants to honor. And he says, that's such a great idea. You're such my loyal, trusted servant. So I want you to lead Mordecai through the streets. <laughs> and Haman knows he doesn't cross the king, so he does it. And he does it with absolute self-control. He parades Mordecai through the streets and as soon as it's finished, he runs home. And the family say, oh, isn't Mordecai a Jew? Ah, oh, then you're doomed. You can't deal with the Jews like this. While they're speaking, 
Servants come from the king to bring him to this Esther's second feast. And so there they are at the feast. I pretty much think that Haman probably chewed his food not easily. And then the king says to Esther, what do you want, Esther, even to half my kingdom? And she says, please, can I have my life? And he says, what do you mean? And he says, she says, this Haman has conspired. I'm a Jew, and this Haman has conspired to kill not only me, but all my people as well. And the king, he can't believe what he's heard. He walks out. Haman knows his time is up. He grabs onto her, and he's begging her. But as the king walks back in, all he sees is Haman assaulting his wife. And then out comes a servant who says, by the way, king, he put a gallows up for Mordecai. And the king says, let him hang on it. When we bring it together, we actually see that by living godly in an ungodly world, God works his purposes through us. I pray... I prayed this in South Africa recently, but I pray, God, please work through me, not despite me. I think it's awful to have God work through, despite you. He uses you, but he works despite you. It's far more glorious that he works through us because we do what he calls us to do. We live godly lives. And it's hard. It's hard for Esther, as a girl, to stand before this king. He's her husband, but he's her king. And her life is on the line. It's hard for Mordecai to see his, someone who's like his daughter, but his cousin, in that place. And he's not able to look after her, not able to look out for her. He has to look out for her from a distance. I wonder how it was for Mordecai not to bow down before the king. I just think he was strong-headed. But everybody else is bowing down before Haman. But because they did what God called them to do, how much more glorious was God's purposes that were wrought through them? That it's not just about saving the the Jewish people, but that Esther herself becomes a prefigurement of Messiah, which she could not be had she not done it the way God wanted her to do it. And so the picture becomes so much more beautiful and so much more precious. And the roles that we play before the Lord, we play them not because from any kind of fleshly, selfish motive like the king, I'm the boss here and not from that pride, but from that humility of knowing your right place beneath God. And you fulfill that role before a watching world in antipathy to the way the world sees it and the way the world does it. But they hold their own by the grace of God. And I think they did it prayerfully. We know Esther did what she did prayerfully. They fasted and prayed for three days. But we need to do it prayerfully. Uh, I like what Paul says, and I can't remember the context what he says it, but he says, who is sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient? 
the more we follow the Lord, the more we are put into very different situations, the more we are stretched, the more we've tried, the more we realize how insufficient we actually are and how reliant on the grace of God we are. And the outcome of that was the salvation of an entire nation. And when Esther went into that king's court, she had no idea what God's purpose was. God was silent. God's name is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. But God was still working his purposes through all those things. And so it is with us that the times that God is silent, we don't know why he's placed us where he's placed us. We don't know why we've got the job that we've got. We know that, well, it was an opportunity. We went for it, and it seemed a good wage. But God's got his purposes through all these things as well, as mundane as getting a job is, as mundane as doing your weekly grocery shopping at a particular shop. God's got his purposes through all of that. And, um, and we just... Um, Trust him that he will make it clear to us as he made it clear, especially through Haman's edict with Mordecai and Esther. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, for this narrative, Lord, that is so full of truths about who you are and who who you call us to be, how you call us to act, how you call us to walk through a pagan land with pagan, um, pagan values. Lord God, this is, not, this is not unusual, Lord God. This is the way the early church lived. And this is the way that most of the persecuted church live. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us the backbone, the strength, the tenacity, the courage to be as Esther and to be as Mordecai. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.